Welcome to the Swim Swam podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. I'm joined by Swim Swam co-founder Mel Stewart and Olympic legend Janet Evans. Janet, how are you doing today? I'm good, Coleman. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Mel, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I want want to get right into this. I want to say that it's been the most trying time the the last few months with the COVID shutdown. I I know a lot of people are down, depressed. But this is what I do to lift my spirits. I think of Janet Evans. And this, oh come on, Mel! <laughs> true. It's was, this is what I I, th- I also thought of Rowdy Gaines when we were talking to Rowdy Gaines. Who doesn't think about Rowdy all the time? He's the best. No, but a completely different situation. When I thought about Rowdy, I was thinking 1980, and I was thinking that he he lived through that and then went to eight, 1984, and uh, and that gave me some resilience and some resolve going forward. But when I think about you, what I think about is I feel like Janet Evans is way out there in the distance and she's holding this lantern and she's saying, look here, LA 2028. I know, and I know that you have the reins to LA 2028 as the chief, chief athlete officer. And I just want to know a little bit more about that. Sure. And I apologize. I'm outside and there seems to be a helicopter going over. So, um, so yeah, I um I have been the chief athlete officer of LA twenty eight since we um acquired the twenty eight games in the fall of twenty seventeen. Um, prior to that, I ran the athlete side of our bid um, when the city of Los Angeles was bidding um, against many other countries for the twenty twenty four games. Um, ultimately. Uh, many countries dropped out, um, or cities dropped out, left, uh, left Paris and Los Angeles in the race um, through a series of negotiations by our chairman and our mayor of Los Angeles. Um, we ended up uh, happily accepting the 2028 Games, and um, you know we are uh, very excited. We're excited about the long runway we have to plan our games. Um, we are encouraged by the progress that Paris is making, but also thrilled that we have an additional four years, especially considering, um, what's happening in the world right now. Um, Los Angeles is a great, uh, venue, as we know, to host the games. It's where Rowdy was so successful, but we also have the majority, um, almost every single one of our venues, except for a few temporary venues are already, uh, built, including the new $6 billion Ram Stadium. Um, which should be pretty exciting, and Chargers Stadium, might I add, um, plus a, a new Clippers Stadium that you know hopefully we'll be able to fit into our plans as well. Uh, my role as the Chief Athlete Officer is to to um, oversee the athlete experience, um, and that was also my role during the bid. You know, what would the day to day of an Olympian and Paralympian look like? when they, we like to say, when they touch down in Los Angeles until the day they leave. Um, That includes, you know, basics like their transportation, their meals, their accommodations, their venues. Um, But additional things that we would like to make special for the city of Los Angeles as well, um, from, you know, a friends and family program that allows athletes not to have to worry about their parents and loved ones, you know, how they're getting to where they need to go, how they're getting their tickets, to a pretty robust um, internal athlete-centered ticketing program, um, to a career transition program. So we have a lot of great things planned for the the athletes of the world. And it's fun to be able to say the athletes of the world because in this five-year journey with the eight left, I have learned a lot about other sports, other sports federations, other needs of athletes outside of aquatic athletes, and um, clearly a lot about the National Olympic Committees of other countries. So it's been a wonderful, amazing journey, and I, I feel blessed every day to uh, be in the world that I am. And Long if, answer. <laughs> and if you're listening out there, I'm, I'm going to sum it up for you. 
there's, there's this thing that goes on behind the scenes among Olympic peers, the Olympic brotherhood and sisterhood. And it's this, if Janet Evans asks you to do something, you don't ask any questions, you just do it. Because she's always been behind the scenes. It's something that's interesting about you. Is, you know, a lot of people that are Olympic icons and huge superstars, they gravitate to the limelight and you are in the limelight, but it doesn't, it never, it's never felt like that's something that you sought. It always seems like you, you've, you've moved behind the scenes as somebody who's been very influential. Did, did you do that on purpose? Is it, is it just, is this organic? Explain um, that. Well, thank you, Mel. I, um, you know, it's been, look, I, I owe a lot to my boss, uh, Casey Wasserman, who's the chairman of our organizing committee, who is a good friend. Um, and Casey empowered me to be able to um, take what we wanted to do for athletes in the city of Los Angeles and run with it. And he trusted me with uh, my vision. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to work a little bit with Billy Payne in 1989 on the 96 bid for Atlanta, even though I was very young. And I also worked with the New York City bid um, when they unsuccessfully bid in 2005 for the 2012 game. So I did have background working within both bid committees and organizing committees. Um, but the greatest part about my job that I've loved so much, and like I said, feel so blessed about is I have been able to take myself out of that, you know, athlete Janet Evans celebrity position and put myself in an executive role where I feel like I'm um, making executive decisions and I'm able to utilize those celebrity athletes um, to further our goals and, and what I believe will be the sex success of 2028. And so I, I, you know, yesterday I got to call Michael Johnson, the amazing track athlete who is a very good friend, but I'm still, I told him, I'm like, every time I call you, which is frequently, I still am a little bit starstruck. And so for me, those are the athletes that are going to, you know, help drive home what we're doing in Los Angeles. And it's really fun for me to just to be that person using my experiences and my knowledge base about an organizing and bid committee to kind of um, maneuver that and um, make it happen. That's not to say I don't enjoy giving a speech or doing a swim clinic or still being Janet the swimmer, but I have really kind of fallen into this role um, where I feel it's, it's less about all of my medals and more about the experience that I've had um, both working within the committees and also my athlete experiences living in the village and, and being at three Olympic games. Before Coleman brings us back into the pool, I just, I, I'm sorry, this is the, the selfish podcast because I'm on talking to you. I, put this in real world terms, you know, limelight versus the person who is really organizing behind the scenes and leading behind the scenes. I was there in 2008 with Michael's historic moment. And, but I was also a fly on the wall in Beijing, great Olympics because of him. And I was watching you. I was watching somebody that I was a teammate with and, um, and, and really wanted to say hello and be social, but you were busy. I, it looked like you were doing appearances all the time. What happens when you're an Olympic superstar and you're living during those 14 days? Because I know it's go, go, go. What's your lifestyle like then? Yeah, it's, um, I think any Olympian or Paralympian Olympian could tell you um, that it's really fun going to games after you're retired. <laughs> um, and you are very busy um, because I think uh, people, look, I think that Olympians and Paralympians hold their esteem because people love, love the movement and they love the Olympics. They love the Paralympics. They love to hear the stories behind it. And so whether you're a current athlete or a retired athlete, and, and you and I know the saying, once, a, once an Olympian, always an Olympian, you're never a former Olympian 
or Paralympians. So we are all current Olympians and Paralympians and all of our journeys are unique and interesting and something that most people never get to learn or really hear about. And so when you do go to subsequent games after you are finally retired, um, you know, you experience it, Mel. People want to know what it was like to stand behind the blocks. Um, sponsors want to know how you can tell their clients and customers about what it feels like to win a medal. And so um, that kind of, um, you know, Olympians are celebrated, Paralympians are celebrated, but no more, you know, mostly on, on Olympic and Paralympic years. And I think that's what makes every four years so much fun. And that's what makes us so busy in an Olympic year because, um, you know, it only comes around once every four years. So that, I think you brought up an interesting point there, um, which was you still get starstruck. You are a, 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 a huge yeah. Olympic icon, but you still get starstruck when you're talking to Adam. I do. I do. And I, you know, I remember when we first started the bid and, and we, we brought Olympians and Paralympians into our bid, you know, that maybe had, um, you know, experiences in LA or were from Southern California. And, you know, we would say, okay, well, we're going to do this event and we'd like Carl Lewis to talk. And it would be like, okay, I'm just going to pick up the phone and call Carl, right? Who was also a very good friend. But when I'm working with them to celebrate their, what we just talked about, you know, that they, we want them to tell the International Olympic Committee um, or the people that are going to be voting for our city within the bid about their Los Angeles experience. You know, I get to call them up and have them be a part of what we're doing. And so, I mean, I could just go down the list of all the um, amazing Olympians and Paralympians that I um, have the pleasure of working with. And, you know, don't forget, though, someone like Carl um, was my hero in 84, right? I was 12 years old. I watched the 84 games in Los Angeles. And even if ultimately he did become my peer, he's still Carl Lewis and he's still pretty incredible. And, I, you know, I can't deny that I watched him like, you know, half the world did in 1984, absolutely mesmerized by how talented he was on the track. And that goes for, for many athletes in many different sports. Let's, so, take it back. Let's take it back to the pool. And, I, and I'll let Alec Coleman nerd it up. He can swim nerd it up all he wants to. But so uh, when I was on the national team in the 1980s, I was typically the, the youngest or the second youngest, if Lars was on the team, Lars Jorgensen guy and janet was always the youngest female on the team and uh so i got this this front row seat to see your career but going right to 1988 painting the picture we're in seoul and i and i had no understanding of how big the the, the media presence would be and how overwhelming it would be but i was slack-jawed when i when i witnessed it Me too. and my moment i don't i don't remember which race it was i do remember the 400 freestyle but I'm in the stands, and this is the way it is, the thumbnail in my brain. Two rows down is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Somehow, Derek Torres walks down and ends up sitting next to him, almost in his lap. You're racing, and I just remember thinking, oh my God, is she really gonna go that fast? And, and I felt like you had the same experience, like, oh my God, did I really go that fast when you went the 403 in 1988? Can you, can you take us back there and, and relive it a little bit? Sure. I, you know, we just lost my dad last year and it was his favorite race. So, so talking about my 400 free is always very emotional for me. Um, but, you know, first of all, I think I will take us back to Seoul and you were there in 88. You know, it was the first Olympics since 1976 that the East had met the West. And we, for those of you who weren't around in the olden days, like Mel and I were, like those were 
the Cold War was palpable. And, you know, I think it was, you know, most, most palpable in 88, even though the fall of the Iron Curtain was only a year away, you know, there had been such a buildup between the boycott of 1980 and then the boycott of 1984, the East German women um, had dominated and the Soviet men had dominated our respective, um, you know, sides of the pool. And, you know, really my races were the first races against the East Germans. And I was going in as a world record holder in the 400 and 800 and the American record holder in the 400 IM. Um, everyone forgets I swam the IM. My daughter's like, wait, you swam the IM? Like, yeah, it was actually my first gold medal. Um, but, you know, I had a shot to beat these Germans, but many people didn't think I would because I was too short, too little, too skinny. My stroke looked too funny. Um, and I think part of the... Um, kind of celebration that came out of my uh, successes in Seoul had to do with the fact that I didn't let that bother me. So, you know, when I stood up on the starting blocks against those East Germans, they were really, I can say this now because they were my friends, they were really scary. Like they were big, strong women who didn't look you in the eye, weren't allowed to speak with you. And I was just a teenager that like wanted everyone to be my friend. And so it was, it was intimidating to deal with them. And I saw the intimidation factor hit a lot of our American women at those games. They looked at them, they were intimidated. The race was over before it began. Uh, but for me, I was so young. I was so certain in the work I had done leading into Seoul. Um, I was so oblivious to the fact that I was little and small. It didn't matter to me. I just knew that I had done the work. I didn't think about whatever it was they were doing in East Germany at the time. And I, um, I beat them. And it was more of a mental thing, I almost think, than physical. And you could probably attest to that, having been there and witnessed, um, you know, that, that they were the dominant force in swimming at the time. And I just mentally didn't really let that bother me. So I guess kind of the other side of that, you know, when you were at the top of your game, especially in an Olympic field with, with all athletes, not just swimmers, did you still have that same level of, of starstruck uh, when, when you were among, you know, your peers or other Olympic athletes? Totally. I did a, I, absolutely. I did a, um, I did a pod, uh, uh, I spoke the other day, the Pinecrest swim team and Tiffany Cohen was on. So Tiffany won the gold medal in 1984 in both the 400 and 800 freestyle and I was like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. Thank you. And, and, and athletes like Tiffany, who, who, to be honest, if I asked, you know, the average distance swimmer that's 17 years old right now, they might not even remember Tiffany or know about Tiffany, but it was women like that that paved the way for us. And so I think, you know, I mean, Mel, you could probably attest to this. I think as we get older, we appreciate <laughs> um, history a little bit more. We appreciate those that paved the way and made a difference for us. And so, you know, for me, especially still working in the Olympic world and the Paralympic world with different athletes, I appreciate athletes that can inspire young people that can um, still leave a legacy on whatever sport it was that they participated in and still make a difference um, to all of us. And so um, for me, I, I also have a great respect for the work that athletes put into what they're doing. You know, I have the great pleasure of working with Allison Felix really frequently. Um, she is, I know nothing about track, but she is an amazing woman, an amazing athlete, and no one works harder than her. And, and the reason I adore Allison is because of her hard work and her um, commitment to excellence. And I, I think that we can all learn from people like that. And so I think that's where my respect for these athletes really comes in. You know, my, my boss is really funny, Casey, because 
he always says he loves going to the Olympics with me and we're going to swimming because A, he'll be like, oh, that person's going to win. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Trust me. You know, he's like, you never bet against Janet when we're watching the games live, you know, sitting next to each other. But after every race, I cry especially when an American wins. And he's always like, oh man, there you go again. But for me, having lived it, you know, whenever I see these athletes touch the wall and they, they celebrate and I just start crying because I'm old and that's what I do. And I, um, I'm just so thrilled for all of these, all of these athletes. Let's bring in some, some swimming history. We recently reported uh, about the greatest day in swimming and that was April 1980 and there were seven world records. I saw that. I saw that. However, there was another great day in swimming. Oh, yes. And uh, what's interesting is that, so you go to the 88 Olympics, and it's, it, it, is, it is, you can't, you don't understand it unless you're there and you live it, but it, the, the media is overwhelming. But then we go to Japan for the Pan Pacific Games, not championships, Pan Pacific Games. And I have been at dual meets with 40 people in the stands. That was more exciting because I think there were, there were probably 20 people in the stands. We actually had a meeting about how we're going to increase everyone's excitement level and have some great swims. Tom Jagard, captain, led that meeting. And on the final night of the Pan Pacific Games in Japan, there were four records, 50 free, 200 IM, 200 breast, yeah, Mike Verman. And her freestyle, the 816 from Janet. And, yes. on, and, and, and as we're going into this, the big news of that event was that Janet Evans has to run around in the shower to get wet. She's such a tiny slip of a girl. And, and, I, and it was just, I, that was sticking in my head when you were swimming because yeah. it was, uh, but talk to us about that race. Yeah. It, it's, it's the second longest Olympic, second longest world record in swimming, isn't it? Is that so, correct? No, that's your job, Mel. I don't know. That's, yes. that's, that's for all you statisticians. Take us back to that race. Tell what, what was sure. going on in your mind. How did you get up for that race? After? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to preface that by talking about that year. So the year between 88 and 89 was an interesting year. I was a, finally a senior in high school. Um, and, you know, my training in 89 really changed. 88, 89, let's say. So, I mean, prior to 88, I was a workhorse. That's all I did. I mean, that's, you know, in my generation, as you know, Mel, that was kind of what I was letting a dairy for. I, my workouts were insane. 88, 89, my workouts were still crazy, but my coach, Bud McAllister, left to take a, take a job elsewhere. I had a new coach, Don Wagner, and my workouts were a little less intense. Um, I was busy with being a senior in high school. You know, my parents tried to make sure I had a normal life. Um, I was doing appearances, et cetera. So my training wasn't quite as strong as you would say going into 89 as it was into 88. But I would say that 89 was my best year. And it was interesting. I, looking back on it, I truly believe that all of the work I had done was still somewhere in my you know, fitness regimen, but I had a little more speed. So you know, I went a 404.5 um, you know, a day or two before that 816, and I was swimming by myself. And don't forget... The reason why I went a 403 in Seoul was solely because I was, you know, pocketed by two East Germans on either side of me. I, I had to go a 403 to win that race. Um, in Tokyo, you know, 11, 12 months later, I didn't have to go a 404 to win that race, but I did, and I did it alone. And so, um, you know, and then knowing that I could go a 404, you know, um, I kind of thought to myself, God, I, I wonder if I could go if I could go faster than an 817, which is my world record, in Seoul, I won the 800 with an 820. 
And um, I remember before the race, and I remember Tom's meeting, I had given, my roommate was a girl named Julie Cooper, um, a very good friend of mine who was a sprinter. And I'd given her a piece of paper with my hundred split on it for the 800. And I said, here you go, Coop, stand by the side of the pool with this piece of paper and it's going to have my splits on it and you're going to follow. And every hundred, I'm going to do this exact split and my time is going to be an 816. And she still has a piece of paper and she... I went to the 10th, the split I said I was going to do for every 100. And I still remember the look on her face when I touched the wall because she had that piece of paper and she kept looking to make sure the splits were correct. So, you know, that race was one of utter determination and utter belief that I could hold these splits and, you know, having the knowledge of my body and my pacing to understand how to do that. And once again, I swam that 816 alone, a lot like Katie does now. Um, but truly, if I, you know, had to say it, and I will, I do think I was physically um, more prepared in 89 than I was even in 88. And that's probably because I was just a little bit older. I probably gained a few pounds. I was a little bit stronger. And I was a little bit more relaxed. I mean, I remember finishing that 800 in Seoul in 88 and just being so happy I was finished, um, not really worrying that I went and 820 instead of a world record because I was just so happy to be done and the pressure in Seoul was so immense um, that the next year was a real off year if you will and it allowed me to just relax not worry and, and do the best that I could do. Wow. So. so you talked about how great that year of training was were you someone who could throw down really really solid times in practice you know you talk about that that body awareness as well. You know, if you were having a good day, were you someone who would say, oh yeah, I'm going to go this and practice and then just do totally. it? Totally. Totally. And even though I did kind of grind out the yards, um, you know, which is kind of legendary, I still swam fast in practice. So I could go a 5,000 meter set. And if the last 400 of that 5,000 meter set I, in meters and workout, I push out of a, a 415, you know? So to me, Swimming fast and workout, even though I did grind out the yards, was very important. It was the most important thing of what I did. You can't swim fast in a meet unless you swim fast in practice. But I was a workout swimmer, man. I, I workout to me was a place to get better, and a missed workout was a missed opportunity to get better. And um, I like to tell young kids that you know, doing going to practice and working hard is like doing your homework. You know, when you uh, when you get to a test and you've studied and the professor hands out the test and you know the answers, you think it's the easiest test on the planet. But if you haven't studied, it's pretty darn hard. Well, getting to a meet and, and having done your homework, having been to every practice, having done what your coach asks you to, when you stand up on the blocks, um, everything should fall into place and uh, you because you've done your homework. So that was typically um, how it panned out for me. I knew I'd done my homework or I knew that I hadn't done my homework and my results at the swim meets would show for that. I have to, I've, I've trained with you between trials in 88 and the Olympic Games. And right. I, and, uh, I was a 416, 500-yard freestyler. I wasn't chopped liver in no, mid-distance free. Remember. I swam behind you. I did not swim in front of Janet. And I remember a set. We did 10 400 freestyles, and they were descending. And we, they must have been on a fast pace because I don't remember resting for very long. But I know – I don't remember what the last 400 was. But I just remember thinking, I, I've got to stay up with Janet. And I'm watching your feet. You're going so fast. I, do you remember what you did on the end of that? I know it was under a 410. Yeah, it was, it was pretty fast. You know, that training camp that we had in Hawaii was um, kind of legendary a little bit. And I remember, because I went, you know, we only had, what, five, six weeks between trials and the games. Um, so I went straight back up in my yardage. I mean, Bud had me training 
in Austin before we left the day after trials, like straight back up. Um, so Hawaii was, I think where, you know, my trials were good. Um, in Austin, it wasn't amazing. Um, I mean, I still made the team clearly, uh, but we had work to do in those six weeks and Bud made sure I did it. And, and he, I give so many, so much credit to Bud because, you know, my, I think a lot of the swimmers in that generation, it was hard for us with the way trials were and then finding, hitting our tapers. Um, he didn't really take me down that much before Seoul. I mean, I remember doing long workouts in the, in the warm-up pool and, and the days between my four IM and the four free, I, I, I think I went up to three or 4,000 meters. Um, and so while I was tapered, he was genius and, and, and whatever he made me do. Um, and I think I might've complained a little bit cause I still wanted to taper, but, um, he had between those six weeks, he worked some magic, but I will say that I worked pretty hard too, as you know. Were you ever disappointed? Did you ever want to be a sprinter? All the time. Who doesn't want to be a sprinter? But I, I like to say that distance swimming chose me and I, I couldn't sprint to save my life. So I realized if I was going to do well in the sport, I was going to have to do it in, in long distance freestyle. And, you know, I, um, you know, we're, we're a different breed as distance swimmers. So it's okay. It's okay. You know, so, so coming up for me personally in, in the Katie Ledecky era, right? Um, I think, I think a lot of people just don't understand how she's able to do what she does. And, and this was, you know, when you were talking about doing your homework, this is kind of what it made me think of because she, you know, it's like, I've filmed her practice and it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Like, I just don't understand. I don't get how she can go that fast. Did you, did you find yourself like having to try to explain to people like, you know, I just work hard and like, that's it. And people just didn't really comprehend how, how far ahead of your time you were. Well, you know, it, it's funny. I, um, you know, I, I love the, the Kobe quote about, you know, that he, you, you don't, he, he had nothing in common with lazy people, you know? Um, and I think that you'll find that amongst great athletes. I think that, I mean, I completely relate to that quote because, I kind of had nothing in common with people like that. And I, I remember in, in my club team, you know, I swam in lane one and, and parents would complain, you know, well, Gianna gets her own 50 meter lane. And, and why does, why isn't my kid in that lane? And, and Bud, you know, I love him to death because he would say, if your kid can keep up with Janet, they can be in her lane until that day they're, they can't keep up with her. They don't belong in this lane. And so um, it's kind of how, it's kind of how I lived my life. Like I'm going to work out. I'm going to kick ass. This is my opportunity to be better. Um, come along for the ride with me or you don't. Um, I don't have time to, to listen to excuses. I was always, well, not always the first one. And I hated getting in. Um, so it was always cold, but I was always the last person out of, out of the pool always. And I never complained. And, um, you know, to me, I like to, um, and I'm sure Katie and all the Mel, you're the same way. I mean, to me, it was, instant gratification versus future reward. And, and when that alarm clock went off in the dead of night at, you know, four in the morning in 1986 and the 88 Olympics are 28 months away, um, you know, a lot of people would turn off the alarm clock and go back to bed. Um, but I think a champion is the person who thinks it's really crappy that they have to get up at 4.30 in the morning or 4.15 in the morning. And who wants to go swim 8,000 meters at 4.30 in the morning? But the champion is the person that realizes that, that work, the work has to be done. And um, I think that's the difference. I think that's what makes a champion and, um, and what doesn't make a champion. And so for me, if people, you know, thought I worked too hard or thought I did this or that, um, it, it didn't bother me because 
they were welcome to, to do the work as well. And I, I will say also, being the parent of an age group swimmer, you know, it comes from, it comes from the child. It comes from the child's desire to do this. And I think parents and in my parents, my mom was a trigonometry teacher. So she was, she was pretty tough and she made sure that I was on time and doing my work and doing it right. Because if gosh darn it, if they were going to put in the work and they were going to make our summer vacations be around my swimming and my brothers were going to be home burning dinner while she was, you know, picking me up and my dad was wrapping up, you know, work, you know, I was going to do it right. Um, but at the end of the day, they always said to me, if you don't want to do it for God's sake, tell us because, you know, we'd love to sleep in past four. And so, um, for me, it was this, I mean, there's a story of my brother and I were both sick. Um, probably, I don't know, food poisoning, let's just say to give you an example. And I pretended that it wasn't me, that it was my brother. So I could go to work out the next day. Like that's how badly I wanted to go to work out and how badly I wanted to swim when I was a kid. So, yeah. You know, before we, before you came on, we, we, we asked you, is there, are, there, are there any topics you wanted to cover? And interestingly, it wasn't about you. It wasn't about uh, your accolades. You wanted to talk about being a swim parent. And that's yeah. a completely different experience. You probably have a lot of empathy for your parents now. But totally. how has the experience been? It's been good. It's been good. I do have, I do have a one child that plays baseball, so he just he can barely swim. It's a little embarrassing. Um, but my daughter swims, and I think um, as I have gained perspective, and Mel, you know this, we're, I'm pushing 50 here, right? I have perspective. I'm old, right? And so my perspective has made me realize this even more, that my parents were um, you know, successful in allowing me the opportunity to be who I became, but at the end of the day, it was, it was me who wanted it. And I have parents ask me a lot, like, oh, well, you know, Susie's 11 and she's a good freestyler. So what do I do to make her be better? Right. And my answer is always, you can't make her be better. You can take her to practice and you can have her listen to her coach and do what she's supposed to do. But, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's Susie that's going to want to be successful and you can't make them, um, do this or be successful. And, um, I just think it's such an important lesson. And I, I think I had that perspective when I was a swimmer myself, but now as a parent, um, I see it, I see it. I see it even more and our kids are out there doing their best and trying their hardest and sometimes they do great and sometimes they don't and guess what as my dad would say the sun's gonna come up tomorrow morning and we're still gonna love you and I don't care if you swim a 403 or a 503 um it's just a swim meet and I think that perspective um really helped me and I think that perspective um I carry with me um all the time because you know we're gonna have bad days we're gonna fail we're gonna hit bumps in the road um but you know, you kind of got to get up and keep on plugging and, and realize that the world keeps turning and life keeps going on and you just got to keep doing your best. So. No, you got anything else? We, we, we're about, uh, we're about, we're down to about five and a half minutes. I, yeah. yeah, I had some questions. I'm, uh, you know, I think I know the answers. So post swimming, are you swimming or are you a yogi? I'm, I'm, I am not swimming. I am not swimming. What did you say? How are you saying fit? Um, I chase my children. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Mel. I walk on the beach a lot. Um, during quarantine, <laughs> especially. So, yeah. You know, the I last know. time I saw you, you said you were, you were, you were, you were doing yoga and you loved it. Yeah. No, I, who has time? <laughs> who's, your, who's your favorite? Oh, I'm Olympian? a homeschool teacher like every other parent now. I work, right? Okay. 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 I got it. Okay, I understand. I'm, I'm there. I'm 52. I go for a lot of walks. I walk my dog. I should, you know what? 
I, and, and during, during this whole situation, our, the county beaches have been open. I thought about getting in, but I don't know. I don't know. I should. I, I, you know what? Here it is, Mel. I like, I still love a good swim, but you know, then you smell like chlorine and you know, you have goggle marks on your eyes all day. Do you still swim? Uh, I do. Every so often, Coleman's shaking his head no. He doesn't know that because he's never with me when I swim. <laughs> you know, Rowdy would not be proud of us because, you know, Rowdy <laughs> swims every day. And if he's not swimming, he's doing his, his you know, bike. Um, but, yeah, Rowdy wouldn't be proud of you and me, Mel. It, that's what happens when you start swimming when you're 16. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I got 12 years life. on him already. So exactly. That it. And you're a sprinter. Right. So Janet, were you one of those people who like when, when you decided that you were done with your career, did you just hang up your goggles and not touch the water for 10 years? Uh Oh, we, we, uh, yeah, I think I lost you for a second there, but I think I, yeah, um, we gotcha. I don't know if it's me or you, but I think I know the question. I think I know the question. So yes, I hung up my goggles after the 96 games. Mel, did you? I, I just, I was done. But here's the thing. You know, I, I, I swam again in, in trials when I was 40. Um, and I think that was a really interesting experience because I was 38 when I started. And um, my little guy was one. My daughter was three. And I think I wanted to take all, I was still really fit. Um, didn't take me that long to get back to my pretty decent fitness. Um, and I, I wanted to, uh, as a mother, it was empowering. And I wanted to take everything I'd learned through my career, which was balance, perspective. You can kind of do anything you put your mind to and, and see what panned out at the age of 40. So to say that I never wanted to come back to the sport post-1996 is not true. Uh, I think most retired swimmers could tell you that we still kind of dream about getting in and swimming and, and feeling good in the water and popping off a set of 10 400s and going four fifteens on whatever one, but it's just so hard to get to that level of fitness that we just don't try anymore. I mean, at least that's my excuse. But when I did try, it was actually really a lot of fun. Before we close out, we have to, we have to ask the question, the, you know, the handing the torch off to Muhammad Ali in 1996, where does that fit into your emotions and excitement and what you remember and your feelings about the Olympic games? Well, then that's going to have to be the last three minutes and 15 seconds of our, of our questions because um, to me, Mel, and I know you've heard me tell this story, it was hands down the greatest moment of my Olympic career. Um, you know, 96 was an interesting games for me. I, I quit after 92. In, in many t- ways, 92 was a disappointment for me because I lost the gold in the 400 and only won the silver. Um, and, and I came back to swimming in 93 to try to understand you know, what happens when you don't win to understand that it was going to be okay if Janet Evans didn't step on the blocks every time she swam 400 freestyle and win. Um, and I mostly got there and the years between 93 and 96 were fun for the most part. Um, still didn't understand a lot. I was still very naive and I still thought winning was important. So fast forward to a few weeks before the ceremonies and Billy Payne, whom I had worked with um, during the bid and, and the organizing aspects of Atlanta, called me up and asked me to pass the torch. Um, he, or run the torch. He told me I was going to be the second to last person and the final runner, um, or final female runner, would not tell me who was passing it to me or who I was passing it to. Um, I, I kind of, I hedged. Um, he told me it was going to be the greatest moment of my Olympic career. I disagreed. Um, but I agreed to do it because, you know, what can be better than winning, right? I agreed to do it because I didn't want 
I don't know. I just thought it was an opportunity, but I told him I was probably going to fall. Um, and you, I think you were there, Mel, but I found myself on that dark and I had Holyfield run towards me and he, he passed me the torch and I started running slowly and I was really scared that I was going to fall, but then I started looking at all the athletes in the infield and I saw you guys because the Americans were in the front and I saw other Americans, but then I saw, you know, these athletes from all over the world. And I realized that the majority of athletes at the games don't win medals, but they're there to represent their families and their countries and their friends and their loved ones. And then I got up to the top and there was Muhammad Ali, who was a shadow of who he was, but was there in front of the world um, showing courage and grit and determination and um, hands down the greatest moment of my Olympic career. I would give up every medal to do it again. And it is a moment I carry with me now because it taught me so much about courage and what really defines success in life. And I can tell you that it's not just gold medals. That's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Janet. This was awesome. It was great. Oh God, that was so good. What a pro move. <laughs> um, yeah, that, yeah, we're good. <laughs>